Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Brendan Lee. Hi, Brendan, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. And we're going to focus our attention on maths, perhaps the science of maths. But first, Brendan, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Yeah, my name is Brendan Lee. Uh, I am from New South Wales, Australia. Um, I am a assistant principal, so middle leader. Uh, I'm not on a class, so I kind of work more with teachers and and um, running professional development and supporting them in implementing evidence informed practice. And I guess I've I've kind of got involved in this movement of it's a bit of a groundswell of teachers in in terms of trying to get the evidence moving into classrooms and yeah, just doing whatever I can uh, to support that. Excellent. I mean, you're also the host of what I want to looks like a, a very popular and certainly deserves to be popular from what I've listened to and podcast based around knowledge for teachers. Yeah, the knowledge for teachers podcast, basically, I started that up as a way of, uh, you, you know, trying to further the impact that I can have, you know, so I've also got a blog learn with Lee.net. Uh, and both of those have just been a way of me trying to communicate, uh, you know, the different messages that need to be um, pushed out there, whether it's to do with mathematics or, uh, you know, I've also spoken to a lot of the, the science of reading people as well. And, and and I guess just people who have actually got things happening in schools. Uh, you know, one of the, the things I'm really interested in is the actual implementation part of it. When I first came across all of this research and, uh, you know, fell down that that deep rabbit hole of, of uh, looking at, at different areas, I started to wonder like why, why was all of this information not translating into uh, improvements in student outcomes straight away? Uh, you know, and, and so I, I kind of just started reading and, and researching and trying to find out like what actually needs to happen to make teacher behavior change in the classroom, you know, and, and that's, you know, I find that really fascinating as well. It's just how difficult it is to get ch- teachers to actually change what they're doing. I love the sound of this. I mean, it feels like you're one of our kindred spirits, um, despite being on the sort of the other side of the world. Um, but I mean, in terms of audience engagement with with our podcast, because obviously we're we're set up to sort of support primary teachers and using sort of our our best bets for improving our practice. Um, and it goes England and then Australia. So there's definitely an appetite. Um, and it might be that mm. the systems have a lot of parallels between the two, I think, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, I was talking to you before we started recording today about how it feels like in Australia that over in the UK, you guys are a couple of steps ahead of us in terms of um, actually implementing the evidence in the classrooms. And, uh, you know, you've got some quite prominent voices. I know that you've got, you know, people like Christopher Such and Neil Armand and, um, you know, people like that who you're, you've got on your podcast a lot. And um, they're re- really well respected over here as well in Australia. And, and I think, yeah, the, the synergy between the two countries um, probably means that you've got a lot of Aussies listening to your podcast. And um, I th- yeah, I think there are similarities, apart from the fact that, you know, we're, we're both English speaking countries, um, probably just similarities in the actual, um, the systems themselves and, uh, you know, how they're set up. I quite often like to look at other national curricula. And when I looked at the Australian national curriculum, or certainly one of the jurisdictions in Australia, it, um, it yep. reminded me of the 1998 iteration that I, when I came into teaching in England, um, it, it, almost the specifications of the of the publication looked almost identical. So 
I think there's been a lot of leaning backwards and, and forwards, perhaps. Yeah, for sure. We have sort of decided to do a special version of, our, of both our podcasts, where we're going to talk about roughly the same theme and perhaps see what each other sort of think. Because obviously, we started talking predominantly about a blog that you wrote on learnwithlee.net, which was about this structure yeah. and, and a systematic approach to the teaching of maths. I think yeah. you know, normally I like to start with the what. What have you designed here when you're thinking about the your approach to teaching of primary mathematics? Yeah, as I was kind of um, alluding to before, one of the things that uh, I think teachers really want right now is they want to have things that are ready to use uh, for their teaching practice. You know, they've heard a lot of different things when it comes to, um, you know, the translation of research. And now they want to start to actually know, okay, so what does that mean for me? What does that look like in the classroom? And one of the things that I was getting asked um, a lot about was, okay, so we've learned about the science of reading. Uh, we're starting to get a, a better understanding of what the science of learning actually means, you know, holistically. But what does that look like in a mathematics lesson? And I was getting this question a lot from people and I'd already kind of been putting together my own iteration of this, um, you know, just for my own thinking. Uh, and then I thought, yeah, look, let's actually put it out there and, and see what other people think, um, you know, see if it might be useful. And so what I'd done was I put together like a, a general structure for a maths lesson. So from, you know, the start of a learning sequence, um, you know, through to the end, you could say, what sort of things I might be following and, uh, you know, what I would include and why. Um, and it's general. And I think the, the purpose of it is to be general. Like I didn't want to get too specific because if I got too specific, then um, it wouldn't be able to be used from K to six as well. So, you know, so this is mainly talking about primary. Yeah. If I got too specific, then things might only be relevant for like a early stage one class, uh, but not so relevant for, for like a stage three uh, year five or year six group. So it's, it's quite yeah general. But yeah, look, it's definitely not set in stone. And I think that's kind of what kickstarted this conversation as well, is that I'm really open to other people's opinions. And I'd, I'd love to hear um, yeah, what other people have to say about yeah, what I've put together and, and what they agree with and what they might do differently as well. I mean, that's the way things go, because when did I publish Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics 2020? And yeah. I don't think it would be identical were I to write it today because you listen to people and you read read their work and think actually that's a much better way of approaching something than than I would have in the past and but I really like how you've set it out you've got here here's some myths here are my sort of influences and then here's what I would do so you've almost sort of you know you, you're you're given the rationale for your your thought process I mean is that just something you built up over an, an extended period of time just from reading informally or did you go and say I'm going to read more about mathematics and research and education research and see how that applies. What, what was your thought process? Yeah, good question. I, I guess my thought process was more around, um, you know, if I, I kind of saw a bit of a gap in the math space, especially here in Australia. Uh, we've got a lot of strong voices when it comes to that science of reading, as I mentioned before. And so, but then when I, I started to look around as to like, you know, who can we look to for that sort of, leading voice as to what we should be doing for primary mathematics there's not a lot of people out there who are, are really across um you know the evidence uh, the science of learning and 
what that looks like yeah, in, a, in a primary maths classroom. So I can't, it was more just falling into that space and then having already a, a pretty good overview um, of what, yeah, how we learn and, and how teaching happens, you know, reading things like Dan Williams, Why Don't Students Like School, um, you know, uh, the, the books from Paul Kirshner and um, Carl Hendrick about, you know, how teaching happens, how learning happens. Uh, those sorts of books have been really formative in my own development, you know, even reading like um, Graham Nuttall's The Hidden Lives, uh, Hidden Lives of Learners. And yeah, they've just given me a, a really good base of knowledge um, when it comes to understanding how learning happens. And so then when I started to look at a lot of the, the kind of um, suggested units of work that were being pushed out, um, you know, I guess from, from the Department of Education, weren't necessarily following this. And so I was, I guess, asking questions of what we could be doing differently and you know why why did I get this feeling when I was looking at these units of work and so that's when I, I also started to then dig a bit deeper into yeah a lot of that that research from a, a specific point of view from uh, yeah mathematics and you know that that's where I came across your book and uh, yeah a whole bunch of books that I've listed on that that, that page as well um, just to try to have that that domain specific knowledge as well because there are some nuances involved there, you know, um, when it does come to how we learn mathematics. And when I put that part at the start of the article, it was almost like an afterthought. It was like, oh, I better put something at the front just so that people know where I'm coming from. Uh, and I'll, I'm not just spitting this out. Uh, and it's just my, my kind of point of view. It's actually coming from this bit of research. Nice. I mean, I really like it because you're almost planting your flag and you've got some great, you know, You've got the Bjorks in there. You've got Sweller and Clark. You've got William McRae. You know, it's it's essentially, it, it looks to me like the reading I was doing before, as I was developing sort of my awareness of, of sort of the cognitive psychology, the cognitive science. And, you know, as you're speaking there, I'm thinking a lot of my own work is based on the idea that despite the fact that lots of this research took place with postgraduates, undergraduates, or perhaps even older students, having seen its impact with younger children you know i quite like the idea that the science of maths is heavily informed by you know the general science of learning and then from there you like you said you, you take slight nuances and things together because for me the research in the field of maths education isn't necessarily as robust as i would like it I mean, did you find the same uh, whenever you're trying to read more specifically about mathematics? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, while it's, it's pretty conclusive for a lot of things in, in the science of reading, you, you do have to lit, um, dig a lot deeper to find what you want to find when it comes to maths. And um, yeah, there was, so my previous guest on the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, um, Karen Zanatopoulos, she was a co-author of a really a really good book that I recommend. Uh, how I think it's How Students Learn the Science of Maths. Um, yeah, and she wrote it with Nancy Krauser and Colleen Mass, and they've kind of put together the, the cognitive science together with, um, you know, specific stuff on mathematics and looked at how uh, children learn maths. And, yeah, I found that really good to find those links between language as well. You know, there are a lot of similarities. And like you said, you know, um, how how we learn, once you, once you have a good understanding of that, it just allows you to make better decisions and better choices when it comes to your pedagogy. I'm, I'm really jealous of Chris whenever he talks about how 
almost uh, certain the research in the field of reading is, well, why didn't I choose reading? <laughs> I was going for if we if we think about the you know the actual content of your structure, what sort of message are you trying to give to anyone who's looking at this and they are uh, going to interpret it and interpret your thoughts? Um, if we kind of just go walk, walk through it, um, so the the part that I start with is like the pre lesson planning phase, and I put that in there because obviously it's not what you actually do in a lesson, but I think it's really important that we don't skip it. Um, and so I just wanted to highlight that point that these are some kind of questions that you should be asking before you actually enter the classroom. I'm not sure what it's like for you guys over in the UK, but here in Australia, like we're flat chat, just trying to have our lessons organised um, for the lesson that we're about to teach five minutes before. Uh, we, we, we've kind of, we're in the middle of a, I guess, a phase where a lot of schools have moved away from following um, textbooks. Uh, and yeah, I'll, 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 it'll be interesting to kind of hear your thoughts on this. But yeah, so they've moved away from the textbooks. And I think a lot of the reasons behind that are because teachers were generally just opening it up to a page and then saying to students, all right, this is where we're up to, go from there. So it was losing a lot of that actual explicit teaching of it. It was more just a, um, yeah, open up the page and, and, and uh, you know, go for your life sort of thing. Going back to that, like the pre-lesson phase that that planning is just so important when it comes to actually thinking about all right what what am I teaching um you know like what are the actual learning intentions and success criteria and it's funny like I know in education everywhere we've had so much on this on what learning intentions are but it's still so uh you know sad in a way that you still enter a lot of classrooms and you can see that like the teachers and the students they don't actually know what the purpose of that lesson is uh, you know, you just see a lot of classes kind of going through the motions a little bit um, and there's not much purpose. If you ask a lot of students, so they won't actually be able to tell you what they're learning. Uh, and, and, and I think that's quite dangerous. Um, and I think it's really important that we know what the purpose is of every lesson. And even if you just try to get to that point, um, it will really help guide your focus for your teaching. The other things I've got there, like Prerequisite knowledge, um, you know, common misconceptions, key vocabulary, hinge questions, um, and then how can you sequence the concept in small steps? And while they're quite, uh, you know, simple questions, they require a lot of domain-specific knowledge that, uh, again, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on, on what your process is in the UK, but a lot of our teachers here don't have that knowledge that they actually need to answer those questions. You know, knowing how to actually sequence that concept in small steps, it's actually quite a, a difficult task when you really break it down. Um, and same with knowing like those misconceptions and what to do if there is a misconception there. And I think that's why like, uh, you know, a lot of the reasons behind the, you know, constructivism uh, approach and, and, uh, inquiry-based learning, it's almost an easier way of teaching, of just putting out a, a word problem or, you know, a question out there and then seeing if the kids can just figure it out for themselves. Like, that takes the pressure off the teacher having to actually know what they're doing to teach. And again, like, it's through no fault of their own. Like, this is just, this comes back to how um, initial teacher education sets them up in the first place. So I think, that, you know, that's, that's where we could fix a lot of these problems if, if we actually 
um, teach teachers the right things that they actually need to know. Um, but yeah, I find that bay is really important, but um, a lot of the times it's, it's missed out purely because teachers are flat chat, just trying to organize themselves for what they're about to teach their students. So it's like photocopying worksheets, um, you know, they might finish off marking books, but yeah, there's not a lot of thinking, time for thinking um, to put into that process. So that's why I've got that there. After that, I go into, and again, like I'd really like to know your uh, your kind of point of view on this, but I call it a daily review, but it's not specifically in line with Rosenstein's daily review. You know, there's a couple of kind of uh, things which are a little bit different. Um, and I know that some schools will like to make it a bit more specific than what I've got. Uh, but I've generally, I've kind of just got some principles to follow and then main concepts to focus on. So the principles to follow, I've got our, you know, retrieval practice, space practice, interleaving and prerequisite knowledge. So when you're looking at like that space practice, so thinking about not just what you've been currently looking at, but, you know, last lesson, last week, last term, last year, really being quite specific with um, the time frame that you're looking at things. Uh, and then interleaving, like the way I'll kind of, uh, the, the example I'll give of interleaving there is, if, you know, if you're looking at times tables and, and you might be focusing on the four times tables, throwing in a couple of other questions there just to make sure that the students are really thinking. So, you know, you might have four times five, four times eight, uh, four times six and then a five times eight. Um, if you've already covered division, you might have a division question in there as well. So just breaking up those questions so that you're looking at similar topics, but making sure that they're thinking. And then the other one there as well is that prerequisite knowledge. So you can do a lot of kind of front loading for your lesson by touching on things that students need to know for the concept that you're about to address. Uh, I find this really useful because it gives you a lot of information as to like where your starting point might be or what sorts of things you might have to focus on a bit more um, than maybe you had planned to. And then on top of the the concepts to focus on, I've got, uh, yeah, so your basic maths facts, uh, number sense, vocabulary, uh, mental maths, multiplication tables, and uh, you might have like maybe one or two problem solving questions in there. But yeah, generally, you know, if, depending on like what sort of time frame you're allocating to this, uh, you might not have a, a problem solving question in there. I like to have these really like short and snappy questions so that it's fast flowing. You know, I know that sometimes teachers can have the start of a lesson where they might have some games in there or uh, what else might they do? I've seen like a lot of number of the day type things come in there. And I think like number of the day can be, and, and this is kind of where I see teachers really need to have like a, a strong understanding of what the purpose is. And so one of the problems with having like routines that are too routine, like number of the day, are that the students stop thinking about what they're doing. And there's no, you know, the teachers, who, uh, the, the students who can do the number of the day yesterday, they can still do it today, they can still do it tomorrow. They're not actually progressing in their learning and vice versa. The students that can't do it, they still can't do it, you know, today, they still can't do it tomorrow because we're not actually um, giving them the right level of support. I'm totally with you. I mean, I think the reason thinking features in the stuff I do is because I think that first bit is the most important bit. In fact, I think that's predominantly the job of the teacher is 80% 
of your time in there. And all you know, it's almost why I champion having fewer subjects to teach, because then you have more time yeah. for for that sort of that thought. And then that feeds into your initial stage. You're thinking, well, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because where a starter gets criticized is when, like you said, it just becomes a part of the routine and there's no thought on either on either end because you've outlined, okay, here are our principles. This is what I want the purpose of this to be. And then you're almost, you're going to use that information to feed either your lesson or subsequent lesson. So, you know, it, it, it's chiming with the, with my sort of preferences. And what I've done in the past, as I've said to teachers, as long as that stuff is happening, I don't mind when it happens. Because I think there was a, a learning scientist's sort of summary of the research into retrieval practice. And they said the time of day didn't matter. So I had some teachers yeah. who 8.30 in the morning would start off their maths lesson and then they'd come back to it at like 11 o'clock, you know, so they were almost splitting the the time they had and stuff. And obviously being a complete maths, the prerequisite knowledge, you know, it essentially determines what you do. And, you know, when you're talking about teachers in um, Australia, I'm seeing a lot of parallels without sort of CPD from that's, that's really well planned. You almost miss out on a, you know, the, the richness i mean even just in this in this first in this first little bit you've got so much richness of thought and i'm i'm yeah i'm 100 on board i'm like yeah if my teachers were doing this i'd be all over that <laughs> yes yeah and, and i guess that's the point of it as well is that it's just trying to give some guidelines as to what sort of things teachers should be thinking about 100 like if you're able to make an informed decision as to all right we're not going to do retrieval practice at the start of the lesson. We're going to do it at this time of the day. That's that's fine, you know, but it just, for me, like um, when teachers are trying to find structure and like to include everything, um, I like having it at the start of a lesson because that way you don't miss out on it. Um, and like you said, it is so important that we do go over this stuff uh, because a lot of the times if you don't, make time for it it just doesn't happen and it or it'll be an afterthought and it won't happen properly absolutely and that wasn't to say you know i think you know that wasn't a critique of the of the model it was more you know because um there was, there was quite a long conversation among secondary teachers in the uk about the, the purpose yeah. of the daily starter but i think you, you've nailed that the sort of the new concept development i think that's probably where different pedagogies different ideologies will, will sort of diverge what, what's your thought process here what do, what do you, you know obviously we've talked about the science of learning and things and um, so you obviously yeah. you've got modeling and this balance between sort of different elements of mathematics what, what, what are you thinking here the way I'm looking at teaching a new concept is that a teacher is leading it um, so they're they're modeling it uh, you know for the first time so if if students haven't been um, exposed to whatever the concept is yeah i'm kind of proposing that teachers actually teach it and that will be through teaching the vocabulary giving examples and non-examples um going through a live worked example um yeah and building that conceptual and procedural understanding at the same time depending on where they are within kind of their their understanding of that concept will depend on like what sort of representation you use so whether that is you know pictorial abstract or concrete yeah that's going to be up to the teacher to to be kind of adaptive dependent on what they're kind of what information they're getting from their students uh, one of the things like i found with this the modeling part especially is that you know like 
I'm someone I like a, a really pretty um, PowerPoint presentation or, or Google slides, you know, I, yeah, I think cognitive load theory, once you kind of get an understanding of it, you, you can get really quite particular with, with um, how you, you, you um, set out your, your slides. But uh, one thing I've, I've really noticed is that it's still vital that the teacher actually models it live in front of their students. Um, you know, we can make all of these fancy animations on our PowerPoint slides, but <clears throat> that is still too abstract for our students to actually be able to know like what they need to do when they're trying to work out um, their problem. Even if you're kind of, you're doing like a worked example with them, if you're not doing it the same way that they have to be, so if they, say they've got their mini whiteboards out and you're doing it through your PowerPoint slides, um, I still get a lot of mistakes happening from my, my students when they're not able to kind of directly copy what I'm doing. And so, yeah, I think doing it in front of the students, like if you actually use, um, you know, a mini whiteboard exactly the way that they are, you can actually help them set out their answer as well. I guess digging into like those worked examples, um, you know, so that's one thing I've kind of really focused on is doing it live in front of them multiple examples as well i've found you know i know that you've spoken a lot about this as well like it's just really important that they see, and and again this comes back to that planning part of it of knowing what examples you're actually going to use and why you're going to actually use this example over that example because there should be a purpose behind it it's not just simply to give them another opportunity to see you do something but actually to see okay um, we still follow this process even when the numbers change like this or whatever it is. Um, yeah, so having multiple examples, um, examples and non-examples, doing it live, uh, and, and even when you're doing like your, your um, example problem pairs, so when you, you know, they're doing like a similar problem to the one that you've just modelled for them, the way I kind of like to structure it is, um, you stop at each step. So after you'll see, so I'll do a complete um, model, model example. And then when I get them to do one with me, I'll stop at each step. So they've got, they're on their mini whiteboards in front of me. Um, and so I'll, I'll do a step with them. We'll stop there. I'll do a check for understanding to see um, what they're understanding uh, before moving on to the next step. I, yeah, again, I find sometimes what we do as teachers is that we'll either completely skip the we do phase so you go from doing a modeled example straight on to independent practice but think that we're doing it with them and so that might be like just because they're sitting on the floor in front of us with their mini whiteboards that we're calling that the we do but we're actually leaving them um, on their own to do it themselves um, so yeah that's a kind of a, a misconception that I see from teachers in, in that sort of phase. Um, the other thing as well is, yeah, stopping at each step rather than waiting until the end to check for understanding because if you're trying to look at 30 whiteboards all at once and you've got multiple steps on that whiteboard, it's next to impossible to be able to actually work out where they went wrong, even if they've followed the steps that you've set out. Um, yeah, they've obviously gone wrong somewhere along the way, but it can be really hard to see, especially, you know, if you haven't taught them how to, how to um, to set out their work properly on their whiteboard, it can get quite messy. Um, you know, I'm sure we've all experienced it. So yeah, I, I find like if you're doing that we do phase, stop at each step and actually check for understanding then and there. Uh, and that might even just be like 
looking at each row one at a time before uh, moving on. And I, I, I found that really useful while it is, it can be slower. Um, and, you know, initially, like, you're probably holding back, you know, some of your students a little bit because they might, they might be more than capable of doing the whole thing. But for me as a teacher, like I prefer to make sure that all of my students are actually understanding the steps before I'll release um, those that are capable um, because I know that I'm going to miss students otherwise. And so I'd rather slow it down at the start and then release them at different stages uh, than, yeah, than miss them. The word pace has a lot to answer for because for a long time it was, you know, that you need better pace in your lessons. And it, it almost became a synonym for speed. But actually, that's not what yes. pace means. It's, it's about the, it's relative to the class, relative to the pupils. And, you know, I think, uh, I think that's definitely something that we need to consider in terms of curricula and classroom practice. But it, it's just so apparent how much of this sort of part depends on that planning and preparation phase. Because there's so yeah, much exactly. domain-specific knowledge necessary for the teachers. If you're trying to do that on, on the run or on the fly, it's not, I mean, I've been that teacher and it, it, it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, you need to have mapped out, the, you know, th this is a story I want to tell with my questions and here's how best I can do it, you know, because like you say, I think I've only ever really used PowerPoint as a vehicle for, or a vessel for my questions. So here's my, my, um, my work, my pr example problem pairs. And it's very easy to have them both side by side and then sort of, yes. but I'm going to use this whiteboard. For, for my work yeah, yeah. you know that kind of thing and um, but if yeah if, if you're if you're not going into this prepared i i think yeah i'm struggling to think what's your approach then to supporting teachers in developing their subject and pedagogical content knowledge to get to the point where they can execute this sort of effectively yeah uh, good question because i, I think I'm probably at the stage now where I am starting to deliver this sort of professional learning to teachers. And I've tried a kind of a couple of different ways of doing it. You know, I've tried giving them like a full overview of like, um, you know, basically what I'm going through now of, of what a evidence informed, um, you know, math lesson can look like. Um, I've also tried breaking it down like into like the different phases. So just delivering PL on, uh, you know, th that first part, the retrieval practice phase of it. Um, and also like really getting specific on like worked examples and, you know, going into all of those nuances that we've been speaking about. You know, I think professional learning and in terms of like trying to change teacher practice, it's one thing to deliver good information, but a lot of the, the stuff actually happens in the follow-up part of it. You know, so like that means me making sure that teachers properly understand what it is that I have um, spoken to them about and presented. Uh, a lot of the times, you know, we over-assimilate information. So we think that we're already doing it. Um, you know, so say I've given ex uh, information on worked examples. Teachers will think that they're already doing worked examples without actually taking in the differences that I've spoken about, so whether that's to do with like example problem pairs, um, you know, or stopping at each step, um, you know, or checking for understanding and how you're going to do that. So I think, yeah, that's the important part is actually following through with the PO that you're 
the professional learning that you've delivered um, and and making sure that firstly teachers properly understand it you know so they've got the knowledge that they need to take into the classroom secondly that that they're feeling supported to actually um, you know if it's work examples that we're looking at they're feeling supported to actually know how to put together a worked example for their next lesson again like that's something that sometimes we will skip so we'll deliver the information but then we don't actually give them time to put together worked examples with support you know because again like some teachers they may not have fully understood what we're saying but they were too afraid to put their hand up and ask for help in a whole school um, professional learning session and so they've left it kind of uh, you know, leaving knowing, all right, I need to do something, but I still don't really know what I need to be do, doing. Um, and then the other thing as well is just kind of keeping people accountable. Like there are so many different ways that teachers are being pulled in terms of their time. If they feel like they're not being held accountable to change their practice, a lot of the times they're just not going to do it because it takes effort, you know, to, to change your actual teacher habits, which is what we're asking them to do. It requires a lot of effort. You know, I, I always use, um, I've got like a sporting background uh, and I used to be a personal trainer. So I always use the analogy of like start of the year, New Year's resolutions. Everyone's got a New Year's resolution and how many people actually follow through with it? They don't follow through with it because um, you know, they, they'll set goals like, all right, I want to exercise every day. Well, firstly, that's next to impossible. And secondly, as soon as they fail one day, they're like, all right, I'm failed, I'm done, I can't do it, it's too hard. And so they give up. And so it's the same thing with teachers. You know, if we're not giving them the proper support to firstly set realistic goals, but then secondly, um, actually support them in implementing it and, and helping them understand, all right, you might not get it perfect straight away, but that's just how, you know, changing habits works is, is that you're naturally like, you know, you're going into a live audience, you know, as a performer, which is what we are, teachers and performers, you're going to this kind of live audience um, who are really unforgiving. They're banging for your blood, basically. They're waiting for you to stuff up. And then, you know, school leaders are telling the teachers, all right, you need to be trying something for the first time in front of this live audience um, and it's completely different to how you've done things before, you know? So I, I completely understand why, um, you know, professional learning doesn't always translate into changes in, in teaching practice because it's hard, you know, and, and it's something that I'm, I'm always thinking about, like, you know, how can we support teachers in actually getting this bit of information moving in their classroom? Like you say, we're so busy and whatever gets prioritized, you know, that's what gets sort of action, so to speak. And, but it's, it's really interesting. You talk about the, the sort of the, the language of habit formation and things like that there, because I, I've seen that as a really positive shift in the, in the discourse around teacher development and habits and routines and things like that there, because there's so much more actionable than broad general statements about what you should do with your practice. Cause uh, I find like, the teaching standards whenever I first became a teacher I really didn't understand what they meant but if someone gives me a habit or routine to build in my classroom it, it's not it's night and day almost isn't it oh yeah you know definitely and, and I think it also just um like shows 
that it is behavior changes that we're asking for. You know, like it's not because the, the old way of delivering um, professional learning or professional development is that it's knowledge changing, but we want more than that because, you know, it's one thing to change how teachers think, but if it doesn't make any difference to what they're actually doing, we're not going to see any changes in uh, actual student learning outcomes. And I think, you know, that's the important part. That's what we're trying to achieve is improvements in, in how our students actually learn. I mean, we're going to discuss problem solving when we record sort of the 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 opposite version of this of this interview. So I reckon we'll probably leave yes. that as a as a teaser for anyone that you know if they want to see how this conversation continues. <laughs> um, I think so. Yes. That out. But I mean, we talked at the start about how your thought process is ever evolving, that and that that makes sense as as teachers. And um, what are you thinking about next? And what what's what are you? Yeah, where are you going with your with your thinking? After, you know, we've kind of done that initial modeling phase and, and you know, we've got, we're following like that explicit instruction process of, you know, I do, we do, you do, but really focusing on like that guided part. Like I mentioned before, a lot, you know, a lot of teachers, they skip that or they don't do it properly. So being really prepared for it and then also being prepared to actually reteach it as well. Uh, you know, I think like, We've spoken about the pressures that teachers feel when it comes to time. But, you know, for me, if the students haven't learned it, you know, we haven't taught it. <laughs> so we've got to make sure that, yeah, we're, we're really looking at different ways that either we can teach it or how can we provide more scaffolding um, for those students that aren't fully understanding it. You know, so I really like the, you know, the backwards fading technique, um, you know, and, and, and again, it kind of comes back to giving less work for our students to, to think about, like really just honing in on one particular element that they, they need to be thinking about so that uh, that way they're able to get that part right. Because when it comes to maths, you know, like most, most students are able to learn it. It's just that we take too big a step a lot of the time. Uh, and, and you'll just see their drop in motivation when that happens. You know, like they'll go from feeling uh, confident and then all of a sudden we've taken this big leap and, and like the information that we're getting as teachers is we're thinking, all right, they've got it and now they can go off into independent practice. And then all of a sudden we're wondering, oh, why are they still struggling? Because they were giving us information that they understood it a moment ago, but that's purely because um, – we've taken too big a step. And what I see a lot of the times is that teachers will give a worksheet or a bunch of questions which are too different to what they've just been modelling. And while the teacher, you know, so they're suffering from the curse of knowledge, the teacher will be able to see how that concept is related. The, t the students can't quite see it. So, um, yeah, providing those scaffolds. Um, and then it also then comes back to that practice part um, one of the other kind of techniques that I've, I've played around with is like um, the re reverse release. So a lot of the times like we tend to release like those students that are capable, but sometimes it might actually be the opposite way. So you release those students that need more deliberate practice on a, on a part. And then the other students, they might be ready to kind of move on to that next step. So you actually keep those students with you and teach them that next step. Uh, yeah, so I found that kind of useful as well. And teachers, uh, you know, always asking about like, how can I differentiate? What sort of things can I do? So I've, I've found that um, 
a useful thing to talk to them about as well. Um, and then the other thing as well is, you know, when we're looking at like reasoning, um, the the self-explanation prompts, and I know like Michael Pershing, he, he talks a lot about this stuff when it comes to um, actually getting students to think about, you know, the, the, the steps that um, either they've gone right or they've gone wrong in or what they need to be thinking about at each step or they might be looking at worked examples that are right or wrong uh, and then trying to uh, give a reason as to where that answer was right or wrong and I, and I find that really useful as well and and again when we're looking at that differentiating um, the lesson that could be quite useful. Again I think it's really clear there's a there's a rationale behind every every decision you've made and I think that that is that's central. I mean, I, I really like Michael's work on on prompts. It's something that perhaps I need to get better at. And um, one of my colleagues, Dave Taylor, is big into um sort of the science behind prompts and how they you know how yes. examples might work. Because he's he he's very much in favor of backward faded examples and he's got a way like a blog slash website with examples for secondary teachers. And you know, there, there's there's so many different directions you can go. But it's about the idea of well, what do I want to achieve through this, and then and then that, yes. that, that guides your decision making. So I mean, you're almost you're providing teachers with the here, here's your playbook. It's not going to be the same all the time, is it? But you know, go on ahead. Here are the here are the things that might be you know impactful in your in your classroom. Yeah, that's the the hope for it is that yeah, that's the way that teachers can use it. Is these are a bunch of kind of um, you know, tools in a way that you can be using and, and pull out different ones as you need them. Um, but I think like a lot of teachers, they haven't got this sort of structure to their current maths lessons. And for me, it just helps a lot, especially for those that don't have that pedagogical content knowledge that we're kind of talking about. Um, just knowing what sorts of things they should be including in a lesson or could be including in a lesson. and how it's going to support the students because i mean you're condensing a ton of research and a ton of the literature you know so unless you know it's going to take people time to you know so hopefully <laughs> hopefully what they do is they they will be listening to your podcast they'll be reading your your blog um, and the blogs of other voices with similar messages um sort of around the globe really and then taking that and sort of as a you know I, i'm going to take control of my own destiny if it's not the on the national agenda, then because you, you can't really control the national agenda, can you? No, we 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 can uh, we can try, but uh, yeah, we definitely don't have that sort of control. And I think, like you know, um, like I'm working with a bunch of schools at the moment, and you know, we're going to start to put together some different videos as well as so to kind of show like what this can look like at different stages of learning, um, you know, different year groups. I think like it'll be really good to have some examples of, okay, so this is what it can look like for a uh, year one, year two class, and this is what it can look like for a year five, year six class, because the, yeah, there are going to be differences in, in you know, uh, how teachers use concrete examples and how teachers use abstract examples. Um, so, yeah, I think that'll be kind of the next steps. And and we've got like a, a, a an organisation here, um, OCA, which is similar to OAK over in the UK. Um, and so they're also helping with this process where they've got like a bunch of lessons online, which they're uh, developing. 
which kind of follow a, quite a similar process to what I've put together as well. Um, and they've got a bunch of daily review slides, which, yeah, I've found really useful because it saves me from having to develop that part of it as well. Yeah, I'll be interested to kind of hear your thoughts on complete maths and, and whether that would be uh, user-friendly for Australian teachers. But, um, you know, I know that what, you know, what I've seen of it in terms of, you know, um, from a teacher perspective, it looks yeah really promising as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's designed with the with the idea of supporting teachers in becoming better and improving their practice bit by bit by almost encouraging them to behave in certain ways and to, you know, it the you know because obviously the curriculum is free, the sequences to is is free, but then you've got these the sort of the paid for side of the product, and it will be things like generate and retrieval quizzes based on the input on in your timetable, you know, so you can then set a quiz that goes across the last week, the last two weeks, the last, you know, all the way up to two months, basically. And, or you, yeah. can do that, you know, so for me, one of the reasons why I was very keen to join the team at Complete Maths is because it's very much in line with how I see the teaching of learning, you know, so even on the free level, you've got things like the prerequisite knowledge, the misconceptions, you know, I've tried to push people towards, not push, but guide people towards research and I've, I've gone for a broad church of research i haven't just chosen my favorite them um, ideologically <laughs> um you know sort of preferences but um but like in the in stage zero there'll be research about early reading or early number and early development and stuff like that there and um, so for me that was one of the you know the main reasons i really enjoy my job and was keen to sort of join the team is because it's, it's very much based on the science of, of learning, you know, so I think teachers in Australia would find it useful. You know, I mean, anyone can sign up. So, you know, they, yeah. you know why not? <laughs> this, this could easily have been a two hour interview. And, you know, there are probably more questions I'd like to ask you about this, um, but, but in, the <laughs> yeah. inter- in, in the interest of getting to work on time this morning, <laughs> um, I suppose we've just got time for one tiny question. What are you reading about to develop your thinking going, you know, going forward here. So what, what's, what's the area that you're thinking, oh, I really want to develop my understanding of that, so I'm going to read about that. Yeah, uh, look, I'm, I know that you ask all your, your guests this question, and, and I'm really terrible because I probably read about like eight-plus books at any one time. <laughs> and, and I don't know if it's because like um, I like dipping in and out and pulling you know, bits out that I need right then and there. Um, but you know, so and or it might be because of my role where I am kind of being needed to be across, um, you know, different areas. You know, so um, obviously a lot of mathematics um, things I've been reading about. I mentioned um, the book before, uh, you know, how children learn the science of maths. Um, I've also been reading um, so a non. I'll give you a non-educational book uh, that I found really interesting is uh, Range from David Epstein. I found that really interesting in, in just looking at like um, how how people become like the best in their field. And so, yeah, I've, it looks at that, that kind of, um, you know, Tiger Woods type of person versus a Roger Federer type of person um, and, you know, what they turn out to be like. So I found that really interesting. Uh, you know, I'm also reading a lot of books to do with like professional learning, Facilitating Teacher Teams and Authentic PLCs is another book I've been reading. Daniel R. Venables. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I also do a bit of work around that stuff um, and just trying to, I guess, improve 
how teachers um, communicate at school and making sure we make the most of that time as well and in terms of being more effective um, a lot of the conversations we have at schools are surface level um, you know how are you going and you know uh, how is today's lesson there's a lot of whinging but we don't really get to a lot of that kind of deep level um, conversation or you know or dialogue where teachers are, are talking about you know things that are actually troubling and then working out solutions for those problems. Um, yeah, so just trying to work out ways that we can get to that part of our conversations better. Um, you know, so whether that is using meeting times more effectively or, uh, you know, making sure that there's times within professional learning to actually look at all right, how are we going to make what we've just learned more actionable. Nice. I love that. And I love the fact that, you know, I'm 100% on board with multiple books at the same time. <laughs> but, all, but, all, but also the re, reading out of, out of field there's so much we can learn from other fields like that, that's applicable to education you know and some of the stuff that uh, the, the source material for thinking deeply and um, just randomly came by reading them all well, that, that actually you know and making those connections so 100% with it for all of you Kofi Kofi Kofufu however you pronounce it you damn lovely supporters it's a song going out to you to you okay here we go Nikki and a P Septi Stephanie Taylor Mrs. B S Atea Adam Katie Lid MC Becca, Jenfred, Susie, Brown, and Sio, Nechio, Rachel, I am out, Jessica, Tom, Oakley, Tom, Brassington, Jessica, Tom, Oakley, Tom, Brassington, LJ, and last but not least, my lovely little Amy Bills, oh, they help us pay the bills, oh, a massive thank you out to Dabby family, coffee support, Help us keeping it at free There's far more content Coming just round the bend Thank you all for helping Our very special Friends Friends Very special friends um, So it's, it's been absolutely fascinating Talking to you and like I say hopefully not the Not for the last time but also to say thank you very much Thank you very much for joining me Thank you for having me and everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.